Some of you know that we've been in the middle of a uh, series on the armor of God. And uh, some of you, have, when you think about armor, probably some of the first things you think about are athletics. And so if you've ever watched uh, women's softball at the collegiate level, you'll know that these catchers sit behind home plate and they have masks on and they have all this pad, padding on because they don't want to get hit by a 70-mile-an-hour fast-pitch softball. So I don't know if you've ever seen these competitions before where a women's fast-pitch softball team will play like a single-A men's baseball team, and it's kind of hilarious to watch the men try to hit a softball. It's really funny. They have a hard time with it. Anyway, so not only do uh, catchers in softball wear armor, but so do football players. And so we've got a picture of a football player up here with some of his armor on. And again, you want to wear that armor, especially if you're a running back or a wide receiver, because there may be a linebacker or a safety that's running full speed towards you with the intent of not, you know, knocking you down or knocking the ball out of your hands. NASCAR is uh, the people also wear armor. That's a grainy picture, but you can't even hardly see the guy because he's covered with the helmet and this flame retardant material. He's got all this stuff around him to protect him from a wreck. These wrecks sometimes happen at 200 miles an hour, and of course, there can be ensuing flames in those wrecks. Um, Soccer players actually wear armor. My freshman year of college, when I was playing soccer in college, you didn't even have to wear shin guards. And so the next year when the NCAA made us wear shin guards, we would all get baby shin guards. So we obeyed the letter of the law. Some of you are rugby people here, and you'll see this guy right here who has no, well, he has a mouthpiece. So I guess maybe that counts as armor if, you're, if you play rugby. Those guys are especially tough. Okay. All right. Throughout the history of the world, when we think about armor, when most people think about armor, they probably think about soldiers. They probably think about war. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul uses the metaphor of a soldier's army to describe how we can be protected from the attacks of the evil one. We're going to get into that in just a few minutes. Again, we started this series called The Armor of God, and it's based upon Ephesians chapter 6, that passage where Paul uses that armor metaphor. And so far, what we've covered is the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. Those are the two pieces of armor that we've covered so far. Each of those are mentioned in verse 14. Today, we're going to be looking at what I'll call the sandals of peace or the shoes of peace. And we find that particular piece of armor in verse 15. Now, in just a moment, we're going to read that entire passage, and then we're going to pray, and we'll jump into exactly how these sandals of peace are integral in our battles against the evil one. Let's read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18, then we'll take a moment and pray. We'll jump in. Beginning of verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Verse 13, therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Verse 16, in addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. 
Now, in just a moment, um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to begin with a little uh, video clip. This video clip is going to be of who is arguably the world's best soccer player. His name is Lionel Messi. I considered other people here. I considered Barry Sanders. I considered Ronaldinho. There are other people I considered, but I ended up going with Messi primarily because those other videos were low resolution. This one is high resolution. So just setting that up in just a moment. Before we begin, let me take a moment. Let's pray. Father, thanks for these people. Father, clearly they are here today for some particular reason. Maybe it was habit. Um, Maybe they're coming with their kids today. Maybe they're coming with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Maybe they're coming because they feel a little guilty. Maybe they're coming because they really uh, desire to be in your presence, Father, and to receive the rest and the peace that only you can offer their troubled souls, Father, whatever their reason for being here today, Father, I pray that they would, that these people today in this room would encounter you, the living God. And Father, I pray that what you would offer them would be peace in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Part of what's interesting about Lionel Messi is that he's five foot six. In fact, in Spanish, they call him La Pulga something or other. I can't remember who's out there that speaks Spanish, but it translates as the atomic flea because he's just this itty-bitty little guy, but he's an amazing dribbler. And so you see there that there are all these, like, you know, huge grown men, world-class athletes trying to tackle him, trying to stop him, and he puts the ball through their legs, and he dribbles around them, and he goes full speed past them. It's just, it's really remarkable to watch him play. In fact, if you, uh, again, for anybody who knows anything about soccer, to watch some of those videos, you just are like, wow, how in the world does he do that? Well, what all those amazing runs and dribbles have in common, other than making defenders look silly, is that none of them could be done without cleats. None of them could be done without traction, trust me. I've tried to play and dribble before, and you end up just falling flat on your face or on your back. And without cleats, whether it's a soccer player or a lacrosse player or a football player, you would regularly slip, you'd fall. That would be true not only for athletes, but obviously that's true for soldiers as well. So what's at stake in a football game is giving up a touchdown, right? If you fall down, you slip and fall, the wide receiver can beat you. What's at stake in lacrosse and in soccer when you slip and fall is giving up a goal to the opposing team. In battle, however, slipping and falling would be really a matter of life and of death. You've seen those scenes in movies before where a soldier slips and falls in the mud only to be fatally wounded. I think that's actually Paul's point here in this passage on the armor of God. You can have all the armor in the world. You can have a helmet. You can have a breastplate. You can have a shield. But if you can't stand in battle, you are a sitting duck. You will fall. So how do we interpret, how do we understand in particular these uh, these sandals of peace that we read about in verse 15? Well, the way we understand them first and foremost is we have to look at the context. And again, the context, we keep coming back to it is that we are, or at least we will be, under attack. That is, you are, or you will be, under attack, and you need to be able to stand. Look at verses 11 through 13. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand. Now, 
In the sermons we've preached so far on this Armor of God passage, Jeff and I have both started off our sermons by talking about the reality of what some people have called spiritual warfare. Now, we may be beating a dead horse that some of you may be thinking that at this point, but I really don't think so. I think each piece of armor needs to be understood insofar as it relates to the attacks of the evil one upon us. Two weeks ago, Jeff talked about the belt of truth precisely because the evil one or Satan is a liar, and we need to remind ourselves of what is true in the face of his deceptions. The truth of God is found ultimately in Jesus, and it's our awareness of the truth of who God is in Jesus that is the vital piece of armor against the lies of Satan. Last week, I talked about this breastplate of righteousness, and the reason we need a breastplate of righteousness is because the evil one is also an accuser. That's one of his tactics. He attacks the hearts of the children of God by reminding us of what is actually true about us. We actually have sinned. We actually have rebelled against him. We have been unfaithful. We have been cowardly. Our hearts, however, are guarded not by our imperfect goodness, but by the perfect righteousness of Christ, so that when Satan comes and accuses us, our defense isn't, well, I've been really, really good. Rather, our defense is to look at Jesus and to remember that his righteousness is what covers our hearts and sets us free. So how do feet shod with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace relate to the attacks of the evil one? Let me make uh, very quickly make clear what Paul and his readers would have had in mind here, because it might be somewhat different than what you and I might think about. Last week, if you remember, we showed an image of a Roman soldier's thorax or breastplate, and just as much of a piece of a Roman soldier's armor would have been his shoes, or technically it would have been his sandals. Here's a picture that I'll show you on the screen. Now, you'll notice there that there are little studs on the bottom, just like a pair of cleats, right? These military-issued sandals would have been made of ultra-durable oxhide. They were hobnailed, like modern-day athletic cleats, and they were sandals so that they would be breathable in dry and dusty climates and on long marches that these Roman soldiers would have taken. Now, clearly, sandals don't provide much uh, protection against weapons, and so that's not likely to be Paul's point here. In my study, I didn't see anything about the nails in the bottom being used as de facto weapons either, so I don't think that's what he meant. And so what I would assume Paul means here is that these hobnailed boots would have been used primarily for traction. Think about the scenes in movies where the Roman army would have created a shield wall to either move against an an enemy army or to stand against that enemy army's charge. The Roman military actually had designations like the turtle, you can look these up online, and the wedge to clarify and communicate which formation that they were supposed to be in. As many of us learned in Russell Crowe's Gladiator from back in 2000 or whenever that was, if only one person is out of place, then the whole team is vulnerable. These Roman sandals, therefore, would have allowed soldiers to stand firm, to take the appropriate place in the appropriate formation, to avoid slipping and falling or being knocked back or knocked down. This idea seems to match up with verse 13. We'll go back to that very quickly, which reads this way. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to 
stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Based upon all this, I would argue that what Satan wants and what he's working towards is for Christians to fall, to fall. Some of Satan's attacks can be rebuffed by reminding ourselves of what is true. Some of Satan's attacks can be defended by remembering that Christ's righteousness covers our hearts. And if this interpretation is correct, then some of Satan's attacks are designed to knock us down, to knock us off of our feet. He knows that once we are on the ground, we're much easier to finish off. Now, I apologize for turning back to another sports analogy, but unfortunately this next one is just so close that it, it really helps. In football, you often see offensive linemen knock down a defensive player. This is called a pancake block for any of you guys who are uh, football people in here. And uh, what happens is, is that when one of these offensive linemen knocks down a defensive player, oftentimes they will dive on top of him. And once that defensive player's on the ground, he's out of the play. It's done. There is a Colts offensive lineman named Quentin Nelson who is widely known for being one of the best offensive linemen in the NFL at doing this, pancake blocking somebody and then diving on top of them. It's an effective move to take somebody out of the play, and it's also demoralizing. So how might Satan try to make us fall? It's not too difficult to reverse engineer this process in certain instances. In 2018, rumors began to swirl that Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias was involved in a devastating sexual scandal. In December of 2020, some months after his death, those reports were unfortunately confirmed. The ripple effects of his fall were enormous, and they actually continue until this day. Unfortunately, Ravi Zacharias is not alone in his fall. Jim Baker, back from in the 1980s, Bill Hybels, former Hillsong pastor Carl Lentz have each fallen in equally destructive circumstances. And my guess is that if we went around the room today and asked each person, my guess is that many of us in this room are aware of any number of less high-profile falls involving sexual sin and influential Christian leaders. I have at least two spiritual mentors from my own life who were unfaithful to their wives and caused deep hurt and destruction as a result. My own grandfather, a Southern Baptist preacher, left my grandmother for a woman that he had an affair with in the late 1950s when my mom was seven and her brother was nine. His infidelity wreaked untold damage on my grandmother, on my mom, on her brother, not to mention that devastation that was wreaked upon his church. Now, over the years, I've had the opportunity to hear from a number of ministry people who have fallen into sexual sin, and their stories are eerily similar. They had served and labored for God. They'd willingly given up wealth and earthly rewards, often to the detriment of their family. They gave and gave even at the expense of their physical and of their emotional health. They almost always felt lonely. Frequently, they had troubled marital relationships. When these men shared, there was always a language of entitlement around their sin, around their choices. Many of these men described feeling like they deserve to have this thing, this, this relationship with this person that wasn't their wife, this exposure to something that uh, would have been considered by each of us to be immoral, unethical, and infidelity toward their wives. 
Oftentimes they felt like they were owed it because there was something that was lacking or missing in their lives. And all of them, each of them ended up regretting their sin. One of the things that I do over and over again here at Seven Hills Fellowship is I try to remind you, the people of Seven Hills Fellowship, that sin eventually leads to chaos and to isolation. Let me say that one more time. Sin eventually leads to chaos and isolation. That could be relational chaos. It can be psychological chaos. It can be physical chaos. The list goes on and on. That isolation obviously ends up being relational and spiritual as well. In these cases that I'm mentioning, these people lose their jobs. They lose honor and respect that they worked a lifetime to gain. They lose reputation, and usually they lose the very people that they love the most. Incalculable damage is done when they fall. Now, let me just say for a moment and clarify here that falling doesn't have to be sexual. It doesn't have to be relational. Falling can take place around greed. It can take place around security. It can take place around pride. It can take place around fear. Falling also isn't just something that happens to spiritual leaders, and it isn't distinctly a male issue either. As far as I can tell, Satan is content doing as much damage as he possibly can to any child of God. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees in John chapter 8 gives us crucial insight into Satan and his goals. Verse 43 says this, Why is my language not clear to you? Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. Because you're unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. What is it that that Satan desires? We're told here in verse 44, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So what does Satan want to do? He wants to kill us, to destroy us. Satan wants to knock us off our feet and to finish us off. Now, we've already talked about how Satan uses deception. We've already talked about how he uses accusation. I think the shoes of peace are our armor against his temptation, against his temptation. Now, let me pause here for one second and give you a, a very quick little action item. How do you know when you're being attacked? Um, it's, it's not always easy because so often what happens is, is these attacks happen in our own heads, in our own hearts. They happen sometimes at subliminal levels almost. Uh, they oftentimes happen in alignment with our stories from our childhood and our past. But what I can tell you is that usually if you begin to feel envy, and envy is where uh, if you don't have something, that you look at somebody else who does have it, you don't actually want them to have that thing that you long for. That would be a sign that you maybe are being faced with temptation. I would say that greed, obviously, is something when you think about sort of an unhealthy desire for too much of something, that would be a sign that Satan maybe is tempting you. I would say that gossip and slander are signs that you're undergoing some form of temptation because gossip and slander are both really you being tempted to try to get something that you don't necessarily have at that moment. Jealousy, the list goes on and on. It didn't, again, it doesn't have to be sexual. It doesn't have to be relational. There are any number of which ways in which Satan begins to tempt you, and his goal is to get you to fall. The question for us this morning is, how exactly did these shoes or these sandals of peace enable us to stand against that litany of temptations? Let's take a deeper look into verses 14 and 15, where we see these sandals or these shoes of peace. Stand firm then, 
with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. So, the first two weapons have been fairly simple to understand so far. Belt of truth, check. Breastplate of righteousness, got it, check. Our understanding of these shoes or sandals of peace are derived from a linguistically more complex phrase. You'll see the Greek phrase interpreted slightly differently in various translations. They fortunately all get to the same idea. In our battles against Satan and his legions, we need shoes that enable us to have a, and here's what both the ESV and the NIV interpret, a readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, a readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. The New Living Translation, which is slightly less literal, translates this section somewhat differently. It reads, for shoes put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. Though it's, again, slightly less literal, I think that New Living Translation, that definition, is a little bit easier for us to understand. What enables us to withstand Satan's temptations is the peace, that peace, that comes from the gospel. Okay, but we even need to define some terms here. What does peace even mean? And in particular, what does that word peace mean when it's connected to the gospel? Irene, which is the word, the Greek word translated as peace, is used in a number of different ways in the New Testament. Generally, it can mean the absence of conflict, as in the absence of conflict between two nations or the absence of conflict between two individuals. The absence of conflict definition is good, but admittedly, this definition has a little bit of a negative connotation. In fact, just over a week ago, Israel and Palestine technically were in a state of peace. In the Bible, Irene can also be understood more positively as in two nations who are in harmony with one another or two people who are in harmony with another. It's a very different understanding. It's a very different idea. And I think it's the second more positive understanding of peace that Paul has in view here, especially when it's called the gospel of peace. There's a prominent New Testament Greek dictionary that defines peace this way. I'm going to read it twice. The tranquil state of a soul, assured of its salvation through Christ, and so fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot. There's different aspects of that definition. Let me read it one more time. The tranquil state of a soul, right? So this irene, this peace that's being talked about here has something to do with the state of your soul. And in particular, the definition here or the, the descriptive word is tranquil, right? Think sitting by a pond in the evening with nothing to do, nowhere to be, no cell phone ringing, simply watching little fish coming up to the surface of the water. The tranquil state of a soul, assured of its salvation through Christ, right? You don't think that you're saved or right with God because your good sort of deeds outweigh your bad deeds, or recently you've done more good stuff than bad stuff. Rather, it's the tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ. That's that breastplate of righteousness. And so fearing nothing from God, because you realize that you're standing with God, that peace, that tranquil state isn't your record, but rather is the record of Christ, that you realize you have nothing to fear from God. And then the final piece of this definition, and content with its earthly 
lot, right? And so what has happened here is a Greek scholar has basically unpacked all these different implications of this word irene and put them in this one definition. There's nothing to fear from God, and we have contentment with our earthly lot. How many of you in this room have ever experienced that kind of peace? Your heart, your soul, your inner being is completely at rest, tranquil in the realization that you have nothing to fear from God, that you are safe with Him, that your salvation has been gained, again, not by your goodness, but by the righteousness of Christ, a calm that comes from knowing that God is good, that He is in control, and that He can be trusted. When you experience that kind of peace, what more could you possibly want? Right after seminary, Kristen, I moved to Gainesville, Georgia. Some of you guys are familiar with Gainesville. And I was a youth pastor there, and uh, I had a good buddy named Ralph Taylor who uh, lived on a farm with his wife and four children. And uh, one day he came to church on Sunday morning, and he kind of caught me before the worship service, and he's like, BP, I got to tell you the story. It's so funny. (laughs) It's cute. And for him, it wasn't a deep spiritual story. It was rather just sort of a a story about one of his kids. Uh, he said, yesterday I took Henry out on the tractor, and we were going to mow this big field where we had a bunch of hay. And so I invited Henry out, Henry was four, and we packed up a little lunch box with snacks and all this good stuff. And we hopped on the tractor, and we went out, and we worked, and we mowed this field back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. You know, later on in the day, we were done with our work, we were tired, we were sweaty, we were dusty. And so he said, you know, Henry's sitting there on my lap on the tractor. We drive up to the top of the hill, and we look out over this field that we had just mowed. And he said, uh, we pulled out the lunchbox, and we grabbed, you know, our snacks and our little sandwiches. And he said, my little four-year-old son, Henry, was sitting on my knee, and he said he was sitting there holding a bag of bugles, if you guys are familiar with bugles, that potato chip, <laughs> and a can of Sprite. And he said, my buddy Ralph said, I was looking at my son, Henry, and he said, I could tell that he was just sort of deep in thought, at least deep in thought for a four-year-old. And uh, he said a moment later, his son, Henry, turned and looked up at him, and he goes, Dad, this is the best day of my life. Dad, this is the best day of my life. And uh, I thought about it when he told me that story, and I thought, well, that, that's actually a picture of shalom, right? Everything is right with the world, right? Everything, you've, you've done a hard day's work, there's deep satisfaction in that. Everything's right with the world, and everything is right with your Father. And so when we can say, because we're sitting upon the, the lap of our Heavenly Father, that everything's right with the world, what more could we desire? The truth is, all of our deep desires to be chosen, to be protected, to be honored, for community, for relationship, to love and to be loved, all of those deep desires are found ultimately in our relationship with our good, good Father. Can you now see why the gospel of peace might help us stand against Satan's temptations, right? I mean, that, that afternoon, uh, Henry, you know, could have wanted, like Satan could have come along and said, hey, do you want to watch TV? And he was like, no, I'm great, man. I'm just out here with my dad on the tractor. You know, do you want to go play on the iPad? This was before iPads existed. Nope, I'm good. I'm right here with my father sitting out here on this field overlooking all this work that we have done. Satan's temptations mean so little when we know that we are at peace with our heavenly father. If you could exist in that state of peace, you would know that you have everything that you need 
and everything that you long for because it's all found in the hands of your loving heavenly father. That's exactly what I think Paul is talking about here. Satan's temptations ring so hollow when we are walking with God, when we have our security in